To celebrate 10 years of Monocle 24, we're looking back at some of our favorite moments on air, from live broadcasts out on the road to coverage of the biggest news stories of the past decade, and listening back to some of the conversations we've had with the many famous names that have graced our studios right around the world. Let's hear first for this episode from Steve McQueen. Robert Bound met McQueen around the release of the 2018 film Widows. Steve, thank you for your time today. We're talking about Widows and other things, perhaps. What an amazing, exciting film that is. I wanted to ask you how you started, what the kernel of that was, what the kickoff was in your head. When I was 13 years old, living in Ealing, on TV appeared this series written by Linda Plant called Widows about these four women who have to attempt a heist after their husband's demise. And it was one of those situations where I saw myself within these women, these heroes. Usually I projected myself onto Sean Connery being 007 or Johnny Wiseman playing Tarzan, but all of a sudden I projected myself onto these women who I understood for the first time as heroes because they had to sort of deal with the idea that people not deeming them capable and being judged by their appearance. And I just loved the way they went about their sort of task, getting to their goal with the same situation of sort of turning over and the idea of sort of navigating certain kind of stereotypes put upon them and turning on it's on their head. They're underdogs. I mean, they're gritty women, it seems, in the original and obviously in your take on it. But they're women with a lot going for them. But they have to suddenly realise their potential very quickly. Well, that's it. That's what I love about this whole idea of accelerating the sort of emotional development through unfortunately their grief situation the, the grief but also the fact that they have to sort of pull off this high so the emotional sort of development has to be sort of accelerated as well as putting on the political aspect onto the picture and having as an election which sort of accelerates things too yeah i mean the train has left the station from the opening of the curtain because we know it's highest picture as well so there's a downward motion from the get-go and what's that like doing it's a genre film you haven't done that sort of thing before it's it's like you've got a new train set that you can play with and you know kind of which direction that train's got to go in, but you can paint the train any colour you want. Mm. You can put any driver in the, in the driver's seat. Is that vaguely analogous to the process of doing something like that? It's, it must be fun to make something where you maybe know the end before you, you start it. What's interesting about that as well, the whole idea of a, a train analogy, is that you're moving through the landscape, the environment of so many things, so therefore you could have these, all these different kind of stops on the idea of, of what the city sort of entails to get the end of your destination. So I just love that whole idea of this roller coaster ride, moving through the city and sort of, you know, getting an idea of policing, getting an idea of corruption, politics, yeah. religion, and how that, how all those things sort of intertwine. And were those things on the table when you started making the picture in your head? The fact that I've been going to Chicago for 22 years, my first museum show was in the Art Museum of Modern Art in Chicago in 1996, and... My girlfriend at the time, who now is my partner, went to a Democratic convention when Bill Clinton was still president. So I always say my first footprint into uh, Chicago was art and politics. So those things were so very much in my mind, that the McQuarrie McDonald event and how that sort of resonated and sort of speaking to people who were involved in that. It was uh, very important to sort of do the research with myself and Gillian Flynn. So it goes back to that, your time in Chicago, your first museum show 22 years ago yeah did you see is it the ninth district no, it was 18th, 18th yeah. but also over a period of time of course it was going back and i was very fortunate enough to be invited and, and to go back by myself seeing how the how race and class and politics and religion and everything else and policing were what was happening there it's very evident the question is you know why did i make this picture in london london in the early 80s is very different to london now 
and I wanted to place this fiction in the contemporary modern city. And, and for me, that, with all its problems, and that for me was Chicago. And you work with Gillian Flynn on the script. If you're the train driver, she's shoveling in some coal, certainly very usefully well, on the way. I think, well, I think <laughs> myself and Gillian, as far as the script is concerned, is, is both on the steering wheel. You could say that I'm sort of the, the main driver as such, but at the same time, I mean, the reason why I wanted to work with Gillian Flynn because she's Gillian Flynn, and she's an amazing, incredible writer. And that collaboration, for me, it was extraordinary, sort of fruitful in the way that at some point you become two musicians and you don't know who is playing what note. And that's, that's the whole idea of sort of collaboration. We're very different, completely different. But what we give to each other uh, as far as this collaboration is concerned is very collaborative and very sort of, uh, I can I say, there's a union. In terms of collaboration, how cool are you with that? I ask because being an artist and being a filmmaker... Well, so two different things. I mean, artists, I mean, again, it's like, I know I don't want... <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. I think to be collaborative and you're the main instigator is to know what you don't want. Musician wise, like Miles Davis and his band, you know, you know, you know, he writes a harmony and a melody, but within that space in between us, we could do whatever the hell you want, but it's got to stay within the harmony and melody. That's about it. That's what you want. Do you think people get the wrong idea of that when artists make a work? People feel like it's someone in a paint spattered studio or someone starving in a garret. They have a romantic idea of the myth of creation well, it's and different. the selfishness of the artist. Well, it's different. That, that happens, yeah. for sure. I mean, you know, I think film is about collaboration yeah. to a certain extent. Of course, there's the auteur, there's the main instigator, whatever, director. But as a filmmaker, you can't do everything and you don't want to do everything. I have an amazing cameraman, Sean Bobbitt, who I've been working with for 18 years. Joe Walker, editor, I've been working with 11 years. Previously, I made three films with Michael Fassbender. So, and of course, Adam Stockhausen, the last two movies I've done with him as art director. That's filmmaking, you know. As far as being in the studio making a painting or, or, or making a sculpture, that's very different. We love to feature stories that celebrate the quirkiness of events right around the world. And the next two clips celebrate just that. Not every interview, of course, goes quite to plan. And when Andrew Tuck spoke to a woman who runs a lemon festival in France, he wasn't quite expecting what happened. She's a festival staff member, Patricia Mietzig, and she's joining us on the line now to tell us all about lemons. Uh, hello, Patricia. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm so pleased that we've found you because we've been hunting all day for the global lemon expert. Tell me, how come Menon has this, this festival? How, uh, sorry? How, why, how? why does Menon have a lemon festival? Sorry, sorry. Oh, is that... Oh, they're whispering. I'm sorry, sorry. There's no. A person, no, I'm sorry. There's a person in my head. Okay, so, uh, so I, I would like to, to introduce you with the Lemon Festival in Manton. Yes. Because, uh, because we are, uh, this year we are, we are, we are on... It's, it's a an, uh, very important birthday. It's the 80 year, years old of the Manton Lemon Festival. And um, I'm sorry, but the, what can I do? What can I tell you about this lemon? It's an international international uh, event, and which celebrates uh, a fruit, uh, uh, the lemon, the lemon of Manton. Uh, and, and, or, tell, and tell me, Patricia, do you grow a lot of lemons in Menton? 
oh, do, uh, the the uh, the production. Do you want to mean to the mantle? Yes. Yeah, the production is very. It's not really very important. It was really very important. It was in the activity, in the economical uh, a long time ago. It was the activity of of mantle. But now it's a very um, small production, but a qualitative production. I mean that the lemon of mantle is uh, only um, for the great chef, you know. So it's very uh, qualitative product. And uh, I, as I have to tell you that the lemon, you and as well as the, the orange, you can uh, 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 watch on the lemon festival. Is not a lemon of mantle because it's not import, uh, the, the volume is not you know important enough too and we prefer to keep them for as i told you to the great chef so we have to import uh, the uh, the fruits you see on the lemon festival okay patricia thank you very much for joining us that was patricia uh i think she knew a lot about lemons but it was just a bit hard to uh, get her to tell us all about it i think summarizing she doesn't want to share our lemons she wants to keep them to herself and give one or two to a good chef that's all she could she could give me one for a slice in my gin and tonic. Where is my gin and tonic? Oh, it's been taken off the table. Damn. Anyway, I'm going to be back with a man who is no lemon. I'm going to be back with Tom Edwards. And he's going to be telling us all about what's happening on the North American front pages just after this. Following on from our Lemon Festival interview, we now have Andrew Tuck speaking to a Swiss Alphorn player who had just won a competition. Another popular clip among the staff here at Midori House. Now it's 1852 in London, and you're listening to Dory House. And we can have a bit of a horny story now, because the people of Nandaz uh, must be removing their earplugs this afternoon. This weekend, the Swiss town played host to a very noisy battle. More than 10,000 people attended the 11th International Alphorn Festival. Hundreds of players gathered around the lake to play, and a handsome sound it must have been. Well, maybe. Part of the festivities included the International Alphorn Championship, and it's Victor Hans Matt is going to join me on the line now from Switzerland. Hans, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Yes. Hello. <laughs> hello. Now, tell me first of all, what makes a champion hornblower? Uh, it was a big uh, competition with uh, nearly hundred people, and then on Saturday and every group and solo have to play and then on Sunday the final of the finalists uh, of the, f- the five uh, first place of solo, the five first place of uh, groups have to play on 2,200 meter top of the mountain to the final and then I, I play then Alphorn and Büchel is, Büchel is another instrument from Switzerland is more higher than Alpon, but the, the same typical. And I have, I was in the final for in both instruments. So, and I was winning the first and the second play in the final. <laughs> I was really happy. It was a great day. <laughs> Congratulations. That's, that's, that's amazing. Now, can you just tell me what the judge is looking for when they listen to you blow your horn? What they're looking for? Yeah, what are the judges looking for? Is it noise? Is it the quality of the tune? of the tune is the noise and is uh, how loud how how uh, lies you know the opposite of loud and how correctly the tune how correctly each tune to the order uh, 
anything but what we're looking for uh, in a big orchestra, you know. And how young were you when you first started blowing your horn? It's uh, 17 years ago. I'm 54 now. (laughs) Is there a chance that we could get you to do it on the radio? I think so. I'm now in my living room and I have my horn here. Normally I play outside. It's an outside instrument, you know, especially in the mountains. You can alphorn about eight or ten kilometers away if it's a really quiet night or some other day on a day okay. in the mountains. It's well, very But we shouldn't have it too long ago, but if we could hear you blow your horn now that would be amazing. I would I can do it. Okay, we're 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 all waiting. Okay. Your lips are around it now, you're ready to go? <laughs> That was amazing. Just tell me, is that a traditional local tune? Yes, it's, uh, maybe it's inside in a house. It's, it's maybe it's very, very more uh, soundy or noisy. Outside, the uh, tune go more away to the in the air, you know. Now, can I tell you, ask you rather, when you're practicing at home, is that a bit complicated for your next door neighbours when you're blowing your horn all night? blowing the horn normally never at home i have to go to the forest i have to go on a small mountains outside here or if it's really much raining i go under the bridge not far away from me we have a little lake so i go under the the root bridge and it's then it, the sound is like in a church or in a cathedral you know very nice so i do all my practice there and or in the for in the on the end of a forest uh, in a small valley where we have also a good echo. So just for, for the listeners, can you tell us actually how long is it? How long is the, your horn? Three metre and 40 centimetre. Over the years, we've learned plenty of new skills live on air, but one of the most remarkable was when Andrew Tuck and Robert Bound were taught to yodel on the Monocle Weekly by urban yodeler Doreen Kutsky. We've got a thing we wanted to ask you. Here's the rub. You're a yodeling teacher. Yeah. Now, first of all, Andrew's kind of rolling his eyes at me. Because <laughs> he knows I've got the worst. This is a, if, I've got this a bit of a leading, cold, though, right? oh. <laughs> Poor guy. We might, we might ask you to, to teach us something. But first, you've got to describe where you do some of your teaching. Yeah. I think you've got a bit of a grotto in Berlin, in Kreuzberg, right? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's called, or it's named Yodeling School Kreuzberg, and it's not a building, of course. <laughs> Don't run the <laughs> Doesn't uh, have a huge <laughs> yodeling school. <laughs> People are coming at my home, and I teach yodeling there. I have very friendly neighbors. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> they are used to it. And uh, workshops I do in Kreuzberg as well. Yodeling is, uh, it's very easy. So I can just give you an example. It's, uh, you have to break your voice from the chest voice to the falsetto and back. 
Okay, I'm going to do, I've got to do a bit of a cough first because I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, do you want to start? You... I'm not even sure where my chest voice is. Yeah, actually, so but I can. Okay. Chest, chest voice. You. Chest you, is this now. This, okay. is, this, this is, is your chest, chest voice. voice. Yeah. Okay, this but, is my chest so voice. So you have to focus your chest voice into a really uh, like it's really like shouting. So maybe go one step. <laughs> okay. Like, hey. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Hey. Yeah. Hey! Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good. Hey! Really and yeah. Hey! And now longer. Just I might get a taxi like, in a minute, I think. And, and try to hold it a little bit longer, like, hey! Hey! This is great. Super. And now, this is the first part of yodeling. So it was just a uh, half yodel. Now, you know your facetto voice, where it is a head voice. It's, ee! Ooh! <laughs> Here it goes. Yeah. <laughs> ee, ooh. Excellent. Brilliant. I and think maybe you'll get a whale <laughs> yeah. rather than a taxi, aren't you? And okay. really, yodeling is very close to laughing, so yeah. it's okay. the same. And you will feel better. Okay. I'm coming to now, <laughs> Connect those both uh, voices like. Hey! I'm in the wrong place. Let's try again. Yeah. Give me it one more time. Give me it one more time. Yeah. Hey! Do hey! Okay, here goes. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I think I need more lessons. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You have to start in okay. the chest first. Okay. Try first the chest. Again, once I think, again. I think you're very good because this is the first time you've ever yodeled. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Other than that other time, which I, we uh, don't try. <laughs> so the chest, the chest is like, hey! Hey! Okay. Hey! Hey! <laughs> yeah. And I'm starting here, then going up. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on, everyone. <laughs> hey! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is okay. excellent. I think you're safe yeah. in your job. <laughs> okay. That's really good. Very good. Oh, I think we should. Give, so, I think Doreen, you and I should give a little round of applause for Andrew. Well. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. It's a good Thank first you. attempt. So brave. <laughs> I'm quite warm now. <laughs> I think there's a lot of goats looking for their master. Um, <laughs> you can hear them clanking up. Chilton I wonder what was Street. scratching at the door. <laughs> Next up, a highlight from our series made for Chanel's Mademoiselle Privé exhibition in Tokyo. Here, Tyler Berlay headed out to the city to meet some of the brand's collaborators and ambassadors, including the musician and producer Pharrell Williams. As a creator, what resonates with you, not just with the exhibition, but Chanel in general? Pharrell, there's lots of people you could work with around the world, and you do, but there's obviously a deep relationship with this brand and, and obviously everything that happens here. What are the points of connection for you? I think when they talk about her process and you sort of see... You've experienced and seen a lot of the results, but when you, that's what this project is. This project is essentially these experiential reverse engineering experiences. And so when you see how she thinks and you see so much of her past and so many like moments that really struck her or her really serious hard edge point of views, you're reminded that she's an artist, you know, and that fashion is an art. And artists are usually misunderstood. And as a fellow artist, I can relate to when you just see things the way you see it. And maybe people around you may not be able to see that. But you stick to it. And then time and space reveals that it was the right thing. That's cool to me. And I think 
seeing that about how she looked at white and blacks. And most people are like, okay, you're going monochromatic. It's just black and white. And she's like, no, it's the absence of color. Okay. That's artist speak. You know, that's really awesome. In a world this so much brand overload today, everyone's competing for voice across a variety of channels. Do you think you almost need this type of post-rationalization like this type of exhibition does to get cut through, to give, you talk about artistry, to give it context? I don't know if you need it as much as, because like the person that's buying something or the person that's seeing something can glean whatever they want from it, right? Even when you get the explanation, it's like, well, oh, okay, well, that's cool, but uh, that's not what I get out of it. You know what I mean? It's like someone standing in front of a Jackson Pollock painting and one person going, oh, my God, I can't believe that's what made him do that. Another person going, yeah, looks like splashed paint to me. But I think it's fascinating. And I think if you're really interested as an enthusiast, I think it's really incredibly fascinating. And I think it gives so much, like, topography to, the, to your static perception of what it is that she's done it starts to move in your mind, and you're like, wow, this woman was really enigmatic and very clear and focused on what she was doing. She was, like, challenging so many customs. And that's what real true artists do. They challenge the norm, and and that is their art form, the way in which they challenge things. I find that that incredibly fascinating. But not everybody's going to get off on that. Not everybody's going to get high off of that. But for me, I'm like, wow. Do real artists give credit where credit's due? I think that's a matter of opinion because there are real artists that don't. And then there are like non-artists that do and vice versa. So I think that's a matter of personal opinion. I think what's interesting here is that there is a level of credit, just all of the ateliers you see that we're really talking about craft here as well, which is something which is not just about the singular voice of brand, but also there's a whole backup team behind this. 100%. That's, yeah. And they deserve just as much light in the sun as she did. And I think that's what the current custodians of the brand are doing really well, going back and supporting all of craftsmen and their guilds like, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. Because to your point, there are people who don't give credit. And I think that credit is to be given and never to be taken. So you kind of have to, like, wait for it. That's why I try to spend most of my time when it comes to things that, that have been done with me and my team. I try to spend more time talking about them. Hmm. We had a conversation yesterday about some projects that you were doing. And we sort of touched on this direction and being able to give people channels to do things. We were talking certainly in an urban sort of city context. And I'm wondering, do we give people enough opportunity to appreciate craftsmanship, to make that a channel, a career choice? Because, you know, it seems a lot of focus today is you should go become a lawyer. You know, you should go and do eight years university. And actually, if you're going to go and hang cables for AT&T, that's not so important. But you can make a lot of money, actually. Yeah, I think that's just very old and stereotypical. And I feel like the generations before ours, that's what they aspired to do. Like, they were so happy to, I'm speaking from the African-American or African diaspora point of view, they were so happy to, to have elevated jobs beyond just factory work or just stuff that was just like tumultuous human toil, like jobs that needed to get done but were very hard on the physical condition. 
I think that they were like, oh, man, you know, use your head, like, you know, go become a doctor or go become a lawyer. And I just think that, like, we're in a different time, right? We're, I just think that was a different time. And I think craftsmanship is more so an art form. And I think the more we tell these stories, the more people realize that it's not just conveyor belt work or factory work. It's actually using the artisan using their hands and their skill set and techniques and processes that have been around for maybe hundreds of years, depending on what the category is. But there's an art form to that. I think that's very, very, very important. And especially during a time where, like, everything is, like, so tech-driven, we're going to need that, especially with all the automation that's coming. I know Elon is, you know, he's talking about the AI, but people really need to know that, like, the automated, it's like Terminator. It's like the automated jobs are like going to come and take over everything. And so while you have that genre just growing exponentially, like the curve is so big, we mustn't forget about the things that computers can mock. You know, CG and the CNC machines can mock, but it doesn't have the human touch. And that's the difference. And that's the art form. The human element is like the art form. And that's why I think what they're doing now is just so good. Let's look back to the Olympics, which were hosted here in London in 2012. During the two weeks of festivities, we headed to a different country's house each day to present an episode of our former program, Midori House. Jamaica was celebrating some big wins at the Games, as well as 50 years of independence. Here now is Sophie Grove and Tom Edwards, who joined the celebrations at Jamaica House in London. Thanks, James. Uh, You're listening to a special edition of Midori House. Today, we're celebrating Jamaica's success in the athletics and the 50th anniversary of the nation's independence here at Jamaica House. And uh, Sophie, what do you what do you make of it so far? I'm having a terrific it. time so far. It's so much fun. Um, the O2 Arena is rocking. You have to follow the, the sort of Jamaican yellow um, One Love T-shirts down to this little corner, and it's just so much fun. People are all dancing when I went past in this amazing terrace. There's a enormous barbecue and then just hundreds of people just dancing to to music and swaying and just really getting down and that was about an hour ago so I can't imagine what it's like now. I arrived a little before that and there were some frighteningly good odours emanating from that barbecue I had to say I, but I've managed to resist so far I don't so know how long, that will, how long that will last though. <laughs> it's so much fun and they've got a lot to celebrate here at Jamaica House and um, it's staggering feats that we saw yesterday and the day before and it's certainly people have got a spring in their step. Absolutely not quite Usain Bolt-esque spring in a step, but it's getting there. That would be rather unprecedented, let's face it. I still like to think, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not writing off my own chances just yet. Well, lucky you. It's 6.06 here in London, and you're listening to Midori House on Monocle 24. England is home to around 800,000 Jamaicans. In London, areas like Brixton, that have a wealth of West Indian heritage, are celebrated as being amongst the capital's most vibrant. Now, the person charged with moderating Jamaica's ties with Great Britain is Alan Nusumbet Asamba. I'll get that out. Um, The High Commissioner for Jamaica in London. Now, Tom Edwards, who's sitting right here, caught up with her earlier to talk diplomatic relations, sport and the state of the island nation. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary as an independent nation. 
50 years sounds like a lot, but in the life of a nation, it's, it's not a lot. Eh? It's just one generation. And I think that we have come a far way. Jamaica has had influence on the world in a way that is significant and belies the size of our country, both as being just a speck on the map, on the world map, and also a country which has 2.7 million people. If you look, for example, what we're here celebrating this week, the Olympics, there are 200 and odd countries. How many of them can say they have had a gold medal? We have had two gold medals, a silver and a bronze, and there's going to be more to come. But that is only one area. We have influenced the world with our music, with our art and culture, with our food. I mean, anywhere in the world you go now, you hear about jerk. People want jerk, chicken jerk, fish jerk, whatever. We've also influenced the world in terms of our politics. For a small country, we have had chairmanship of the Security Council in the United Nations, twice. We are very active in the Commonwealth of Nations and we have always led the world of organized nations. And so we, I think, have done a lot. Now, in terms of what happens at home, our development has been moving apace. We have universal adult suffrage, which we got before independence, but which we have developed. Our electoral system has been developed, and in fact, people come from other countries to study what we have done in Jamaica. We have a stable democracy. We have regular elections, and yes, in the past, we have had problems with some violence around elections, but for the last three elections, we have had none of that. We have sent our people all over the world to contribute to the development of other countries. For example, here in the United Kingdom, where Jamaican teachers, Jamaican um, nurses, Jamaican doctors, people working in transport, in telecommunications have come and helped to develop those areas here in the UK. And we do the same thing in the United States, in Canada, and in other countries. Um, Jamaican, really, we, we punch way above our weight class. This is, I wanted to ask you about this because you've described very eloquently there in all these different aspects of life how Jamaica does it. Is it the Jamaican people? Is it about the political process? What, what is it that enables Jamaica to do that and so consistently in so many different areas? You mean to have the confidence to do this? I think it has to do with our history. We can't deny that we had a slave history. But we have always had rebellion. It's almost as if Jamaicans don't feel that the place that people want to keep us down in is the place that we belong. And so we've always fought to be in a place that we want to determine where we are. And so there's a re resilience to the Jamaican people and we are determined to succeed. We're determined to overcome all the odds. And as I keep saying to people, we're coining a new word, a new adjective, which I'm sure is going to be in the dictionary in a few when the next one is done. And it is, you're acting very Jamaicanly. It means that your confidence, your style, your class, your manner is what is and what makes you Jamaican. Now, one of our many famous friends at Monocle 24 is Kylie Minogue, who performed our original stings and eye dance on the airwaves. That happened in 2011, and she's popped back in since for a chat. Here's the time she spoke to Robert Bound and Tyler Brulé. We've created 
my little Kylie's doll's house. Um, it's it's pink and it's pink and then just for added color, there's more pink. Okay. Um, and we've recreated different different videos, my eighties videos. So we've got my two kind of action yeah. Ken dolls. We have Photographic Studio, which is a nod to Got to Be Certain. We have the uh, the, the girl dolls with hoovers. Which have naturally light up. Yes, light up here. Hoovers, Hoovers, right? And ironing boards and pink irons. And that's a nod to I Should Be So Lucky. And then finally, we have The Bath from I Should Be So Lucky. I like this. But, the creative but, but direction but by actually, me, me, me. There. But there's an important piece of breaking news, which we found out just before we went on air. You specify that it's all pink because we have a, a mutual hate for a certain color. I just found out. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not purple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not purple. There's nothing. There's I nothing do purple believe going there's on. No purple in the show. <laughs> there, yeah, there's no purple in this office. Um, though, though we also we also heard that there's there's had to be there might be a redecorating of one of the tour buses. <laughs> I surprised. Yeah. yeah, I had to kind of knock some of the purple out. We just discovered that today. Yeah, we it's not it's not our favorite color. Mm-hmm. Have you ever caught? Uh, but, any there, of your, but there yeah. are other colors in the show. Okay. that section is is. Yeah all about pink but we have oh you know what I wish I could see the show just to see the lighting and see the lasers at certain mm. points that they are stunning I wonder how, yeah. how, how, how you you pitch it or when when you were thinking about this and I, I was actually asking you how many months of uh, of rehearsals were then you said it, we're talking a matter of weeks which yeah. was quite yeah, extraordinary we had three weeks to rehearse <laughs> but I thought what's outstanding is that it's um, it is incredibly personal but it's just friendly now of course that's a large part of who you are as well. But do you have to read the room beforehand or it just, just sort of comes out when you sort of get out on stage or do you sometimes you feel you have to draw it out of them? Um, All of the above. One of the things that that just continually blows my mind about performance and doing shows is that it's like chicken and the egg. We all come with a lot of energy. The audience come with a lot of energy. You don't really know mm. where does it start, where does it, where does it end, and I just love that it flows around. And so... There are some shows where I feel like I don't have to do that much. I just have to enjoy and let's take this ride together. There are other shows where I feel like I have to relax the audience. We just relax them and just Mm. say, hey, it's okay. We're all here together. And, yeah, the the combination of all that energy is just – it's the drug. It's what keeps me coming back, that's for sure. Do you already have a sense as well as to how you're going to read those various uh, arenas uh, that you know that Barcelona is going to be a sure bet versus oh, you're not sure what it's going to be like when you get uh, to the Baltic countries? Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> definitely some places. Uh, like, for example, we did Manchester on a Friday night. Hey. Hey. What more do you need? Hey. Well, I mean, the- they're ready to go yeah. crazy, and they did. Um, somewhere like Madrid or Barcelona, traditionally they are a very – vocal and passionate audience so there's certainly places where you kind of feel like that's that's the show that you're going to have mm. and as i say other places you just have to read it and go with it and where's the homecoming is the homecoming london is the homecoming australia or where's the, the home, home gig well yeah. <laughs> um i'm performing in australia in march next year so that okay. will be my homecoming but you know london's my second home so yeah it's a funny one i, I felt very much at home at the do you O2. still think of it as your second home yeah yeah definitely we're just a warm-up act, I know. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's it. Otherwise... And that, that's the thing, I would, back on the audience thing, do you... Uh, it's an interesting thing. It's such a, It's up to the audience to sort of make a night something that they remember as much as the performer in a certain way. There's a kind of contract, isn't it? There's like an unwritten contract between the oh, performer and the Oh, no, I make them sign artist. it on the way in. Yeah. yeah exactly. Everyone's signing that contract. You know where everyone lives as well, don't you? And you send a man around. Um, but that's presumably the thing. It's like there, there's some... I guess some, some audiences are good at being audiences. I, it, strangely, people always talk about Italy mm. as somewhere where... 
English obviously isn't their first language, but they having your chorus sung back to you mm. by someone also with and quite so, a nice accent. And also is quite in, nice, Japan. It? in Japan, in Japan, so? it's incredible yeah. looking out where they all have such synchronicity, waving the arms mm. back and forth. When I sang "I Should Be So Lucky" on the Aphrodite tour in 2011, I mean, I could barely sing the song, and and all of us on stage were just nearly. We were just so elated at the vision in front of us of this completely unified audience waving their hands. It was beautiful. It's true audience choreography when you're over there as well. It's like, yeah, it is amazing to watch it played back to you. Oh, we had that at the O2, or actually all the shows so far when we perform Kids, which is very much a number with the band. And I say to the audience, you're actually, you're in the band now, so let's all do this together. And it's, it's incredible. And lastly, for our series of clips celebrating 10 years of Monocle 24, we look back at a conversation with the late great creative director of Chanel, Karl Lagerfeld. Tyler Berlay headed to Paris back in 2019 to interview Lagerfeld for a podcast we made in collaboration with Chanel called Metier Class. And little did he know that this would be the final interview that Lagerfeld ever gave. They discussed creativity, taste, and of course, Choupette, the cat. When you think about work, what you have to, I mean, just the sheer number of collections that you have to deliver for Chanel. Every I hate year. the expression, you have to deliver for. Okay. I'm delighted to do. <laughs> Indeed, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything. No. Um, but nevertheless, when you talk about creating your own world, are you creating also a world for a specific woman or man as well, because you know, season after season. Yes, but what you say that on the border of marketing, I don't do marketing. No, I know. I didn't say the M word. Huh? Yes. I'm not going to use it. I promise. I have nothing against it, but it's not my job. My job is to propose a fantasy. Whoever wants it, whoever likes it, whatever will be the use of it. But I'm not there saying to myself, this is for this kind of woman, this kind of man. No, that's for all kinds. It depends who likes it. Well, we'll be shown this evening. Can we discuss the process and the passion to actually go and celebrate these men and women who are artisans? Yes, but, you know, it's a collection with inspiration from an old, disappeared culture, but it has nothing to do with it. It's not like a Hollywood movie about Egypt. Eh? It's completely different. It is the best of today in terms of craftsmanship with inspiration from an unbelievable modernity for over 4,000 years ago. Because look at those things, they're very modern. Huh? They are not at all uh, bad taste and things like this. Huh? I think the old Egyptian art and what we see, what survived, is flawless in terms of style and taste. Bad taste came later. Can you put a marker on when bad taste arrived? I think with the industrial area. Huh? Before, no, in the 18th century, there was no bad taste. Huh? There were modest things and beautiful things. But uh, in between, like today, and what exists since, let's say, 1840, 50 didn't exist. Huh? Is this one of the reasons that we need to celebrate the Métis d'art? Because if we're thinking that, okay, the arrival of the Industrial Revolution might have also brought about a world of bad taste that we need to remind people. Yes, but I mean, I don't want to be pretentious and be like a priest saying bad taste and good taste and things like that. I'm not a judge, you know. Huh? No, for me, it's a pleasant thing to do. I can do in perfect conditions. We can travel the world, look how they are organized at Chanel. I think that, I mean, this is quite unique. That is enough as an explanation, if one needs an explanation. Huh? As Voltaire said, never explain anything because it wouldn't be worth it. 
there's something unique about Chanel. I don't want you to compare them to other companies, but hopefully... Never compare, never compete. No, but hopefully millions of people are listening to this. What is unique if you look, if you, yeah, compare to others? What does Chanel do that's different? The difference of Chanel is the past of Chanel and the present of me. <laughs> I think it's interesting that we're having this conversation in New York. And certainly, given the show that is going to happen this evening at a time when America has become so digital, we've seen the evaporation of stores from the streets, the collapse of craft, people doing things with hand. Do you think that we had to come back to this moment to celebrate artisanship? Yeah, but I mean, in France, we still do. Even if the events in terms of politics are not great in France for the moment, we are lucky that we still can do things in a way they are supposed to be done because luxury has to be a luxury. That means a beautifully made product, not just something, whatever, can go. And I must say, Chanel is especially lucky because they own all those companies. And if Chanel had not bought those companies, they would have disappeared too, because the third and second, or I don't know what generation, was not interested or had no talent. So we really had to save them because we need them. Do you think this is forgotten because people look at France as, yes, a place that makes ships and cars and many things, but I think people also sort of look at France, complicated unions, etc. What have been the forces, Carl, that you think have allowed France to still maintain this tradition of, of artisanship, of craftsmanship, of this métier, do you think? Because they had not much else to offer. That was their strength, huh? and you better stay with what you are good on than to go in directions where others may be better. It's a tradition, and they tried, and I think Chanel helped, to save traditions. Do you think some other companies or other countries, let's look to Italy, have forgotten this potentially? Uh, no, look, companies like Fendi, they still do very well with the craftsmanship nobody else can do. Huh? But when we look at what's happened today, and maybe it would be interesting to maybe rewind when you started moving into ateliers, when you started to work with artisans in the beginning, is it a more difficult time? Because on one side, you, it's interesting, Chanel is obviously invested in these companies, so you have these people on your doorstep. Or is it complicated to go and find the hand that you need today? No, not for me. I'm lucky because I can do whatever I want. I just say I want this and I get it in the best way, in the best quality. So I don't know how it works for others. But Let's I'm pretend we're not Karl Lagerfeld for a second. I'm a young designer starting out. Do you think it would? you have these tools that you might have had in the 1970s at your fingertips or not in the same way? Yeah, but you know, in the 70s, I've, I was a freelance designer for Chloe and things like this. I'm still freelance, but I'm running too very in terms of creativity, because I'm not running business, I hate business. I'm not a businessman, because there are people who are very good on that, and I may be a little better on designing. So Chanel, what is very established, in, and Fendi, with every matter of established too. Lagerfeld is still another story, but it's doing pretty well too now. So the whole uh, thing, together, is very stimulating for me, because I hate the idea of doing only one thing. One thing inspires another. If I would be isolated in kind of ivory tower at Chanel, I don't think it would work. That may be, but I think people are fascinated to see that photographer, obviously designing multiple collections, doing one-offs here and there, 
Has anyone sort of mapped the mind of Karl Lagerfeld to say how you can do all of these multiple streams? Himself. I do everything myself. Huh? Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. But I'm wondering, how are you able to compartmentalize? I mean, when you think about creativity... You know, I don't, you can compartmentalize if you don't think about it. Huh? I just go ahead. Hmm? Problem by problem, step by step, collection by collection. And it's a non-stop business. But I am enchanted, and I must say, I never liked it as much as I do today. The work conditions were never as good. So... If there's one person who cannot complain what's going on in the world or in his world or in his business, it's me. Which is a luxury in itself today. Yes, but we are in the luxury business, darling. <laughs> we are indeed. Let's go back to the tactile. I'm interested in, in sort of the notion of sort of making things with one's hand. In Britain right now, they said there's a problem with surgeons. Young surgeons now, because people are not using their hands the same way, no. you don't want someone stitching you up. They're only doing this. Yes. I'm not using it at all. I do everything by hand. And uh, I know how to do it, but I don't want to do it. And I don't do Instagram and nothing because I don't want to be, uh, inform the world what I'm doing. Eh? The companies may do it, but I personally live in a very retired way because I need all my time, 100%, for what I'm doing. I cannot spend time for things I consider unnecessary as far as I'm concerned. So that's interesting. And I've touched on this with one of your colleagues before. Do you think that there's too little mystery in the world? Because I think if people think about Chanel, they think about creations past, they might think about accessories, etc. But part of it is a fantasy in your head. And as you said, if you're on Instagram the whole time, telling people what you're doing every second of the day, the mystery goes away. There is none. No, no, exactly. No, because what is interesting is what you imagine. It's not always interesting with what you see. I totally agree with you. That is the way I do things as far as I'm concerned, because I'm not telling myself, oh, you want to be mysterious, but I want to be not too well known in details. You're a keen observer of popular culture. How did we end up here, Carl? How did we get to this place that people need to feel that they have to broadcast what they're doing every second of the day, whether they're a brand or whether they're an individual? This is a question I don't know what to say, because for me it's like a kind of mental sickness from you to me. I don't think it's normal. I would even say worse. Some of them are not that interesting. Who cares what they do? It's horrible to say that, but it's true. I'm sorry. So I prefer to be silent so they cannot judge what I think and what I say and what I do, because in fact they don't know. Yeah, and maybe this is a great tragedy of our time. And, and also, you know, I don't have the time. Huh? A day is very short, I sleep very well, I have to take care of Choupette, my famous cat, and all that, and I sketch all everything myself that takes a lot of time, you know. Huh? Because, in fact, I wanted to become an illustrator and a portrait artist and a cartoon artist. I'm still doing cartoons in Germany in the Frankfurt Allgemeine once a month. Very hard and tough political cartoons. But I like the physical thing of sketching. So I look for ideas and so on. And I don't look at too many other things because I even said to my godchildren, don't watch too many things on your iPad because you kill your own imagination because you see everything made and sometimes in second-rate quality. 
So imagination is something you have to cultivate. And I personally close my eyes and I can stay for hours and make my own movies. And this is also in and itself a dying art because you have this sort of sense of overstimulation. People think that they have all of the, whether it's history, whether I want to go and look at textile collections. And I always think it's very hard. How do I look at textile collections and not feel a collection? Yes, exactly, yes. Sure, but that is the way it's the way, you know. My mind is pretty well organized. My memory is very, very good. I don't need Google all the time. I remember everything, you know. And I had time to put a lot of stuff in my head. It's true. I've very flatteringly called you you are a walking museum in the most positive sense because every time, no, every time yeah, I've met not you a over the past piece, I hope. No, 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 no. It's always remarkable because a depth of knowledge, which is at your fingertips. And I think one of the, the great challenges of our time right now is people feel that they flip open their iPad yeah. and they can't recall anything. Yes, but that's for the public. I'm not the public. That's the difference. Huh? And thank heavens. I have to invent my own world. I live in my own world and I use what happens there in my work. How do we inspire others? I mean, is it, is it a show like tonight that you take someone who might be doing their bachelor's degree in Chicago who thinks, I would like to go and start up an atelier if I could? Because I think we're in a very, not I think, we are in a very difficult time where this craftsmanship is dying. That's why I repeat myself every day how lucky I am that I don't have this kind of problems, because I think it's a miracle. But Chanel did a lot, I mean the company, that this miracle could and can happen. Let's pretend that Monsieur Macron called you tomorrow amidst the many crises that he has. I was supposed to go to a party tomorrow, but it's cancelled. Well, yeah, I think many things are cancelled at the moment. And he said, I want you to be the new minister of culture and creativity for France. I would say, dear friend, I'm not French. But he would say, you're still part of the EU and you have an appropriate That's passport. That's not, not enough. There is still a passport. I'm European, but not somebody local for any other country. Nevertheless, I'm still going to ask you the question that, he, that he's going to ask you, which is, how do you encourage a next generation of people to say that they want to actually commit themselves to a life of making things within Europe? I mean, within a European context. I will say something horrible. Nobody gave me advice when I started. I built my whole career the way of doing myself. So I'm not a teacher because I don't believe too much in telling people what to do. Everybody has to find its own way in his time. So I'm from another period, but totally at ease in today. That's the luxury they cannot afford because they were not around before. But should we attempt to inspire them? If they like to be inspired, okay, but I'm not telling myself, now you inspire. Huh? No, of course not. No, 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 no. No, you know, I always think I can do better. I'm never pleased with myself. Uh, uh, when I finish a collection and people say it's okay, I said yes to myself, but doesn't matter. The next one, you think like this. Huh? I'm not at all somebody who is totally satisfied all the time. I'm never satisfied, and I think that is the secret of the success, if you can call my career success. This has been a selection of some of our favorite moments on air, celebrating 10 years of Monocle 24. You can listen out for more live on Monocle 24 or browse the selection over at monocle.com. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you so much for listening.